Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, welcome. Love. I'd love to greet you. I plan to be down front uh, at the conclusion of our service, unless I'm up there, and I always prefer to be up there, but I'd love to meet you uh, if it's your first time here. If it was your first time last Sunday and you came back again today, uh, welcome. I'm so grateful that you're here. Uh, we started a new series last Sunday called This Is The Way. And, and yes, that's a reference to the thing that they say on that Disney Plus show, The Mandalorian, right? That's intentional. Um, we're, good. we're talking about primitive Christianity. If, if you don't know, it's set in the Star Wars universe, okay? Um, so if that helps you, you know, frame that in your head. And some of you I know haven't seen that, and I don't want to put you at a disadvantage. Um, just so I want to give you a framework. Uh, it, it's like a, it's a Western in space, that's what it is, right? It's, a, it's Old West in space uh, about kind of a lone gunfighter named Din Jaren uh, is his name. Um, to give you a reference, if, if you're more into that kind of genre, like Steve McQueen in Wanted Dead or Alive. Like that's the, you know, kind of the framework there. And, and right, from, right out of the gate, the show wants you to know that, that Din is not someone you should mess with, right? In the very first episode, he says to this guy, he's trying to, his target, he's trying to bring in, he says, I can bring you in warm or I can bring you in cold. Okay, like, don't mess with this guy, you know, he will he'll drag in your dead body, right? Now, I don't think this is a spoiler, and, you know, you've had a couple years if you wanted to see it by now, but within the first few episodes, the, it paints the picture of this guy. He is a brutally efficient fighter and killer when he has to be. You know, he will do anything for a payday. Like, it doesn't matter, like, what, I, I'll, I'll bring you in warm, I'll bring you in cold, I don't care as long as I get paid. That's, that's the framework. That's who this guy is. And, you know, again, you've had time to see it. Spoilers. Uh, within a few episodes, he's starting to put off kind of some dad vibes. Like, he begins to take on the character, the nature of a loving father. To little baby Yoda. His name is Grogu, all right? Sorry, spoiler. Um, it, it, it's, it's really interesting, and the trajectory of the show ju shows just how much this guy changes from this lone gunfighter, bounty hunter, tough guy, to now he's caring for this little one. He's taking care of him. It, it's, he's very paternal toward him. And it's, it's amazing how much he is transformed just by going about his everyday life. He just shows up for work one day and he has this random encounter and it changes the whole trajectory of his life. Does that sound familiar? I think I've read that story somewhere else. We're going to talk about that today. Before I explain it, I want to draw your attention to a couple things. Uh, as Kyle mentioned, there's a lot going on. There's a note in your bulletin about a couple mission trip opportunities. Uh, one to Columbia in October. They're both in October. <laughs> so October's a great time. Um, one to Columbia as a, a medical mission, uh, and then one to uh, House Edelweiss uh, in Heiligenkreuz, Austria, about 45 minutes outside Vienna. Uh, with TCM. Uh, Deb and I are going there to lead a conference, uh, kind of a retreat for their graduates and their spouses, but there's some opportunities for short-term workers, and they need to know really pretty soon who all's going so they can make arrangements and housing and all that stuff. Uh, so if you're interested in that, please talk to me like this week. Uh, I really need to know if that's something you'd be interested in doing. It's a wonderful way to serve God. Really, the only cost is just the flight. So, you know, 1100 1200 bucks, or whatever. The rest of your needs are, are covered if that's something you're interested in doing. But it's, it's uh, from October 8th through the um, 20th, so about two weeks. 
uh, in the middle of October. So I want to make you aware of that. And then also another uh, mission thing, just to encourage you to pray. Many of you know Dr. Dave Pound. Dave is one of our elders. Uh, you've heard him speak from this stage. Uh, he's a doctor and has, been, has served with fame, uh, medical evangelism, for a long time. Um, he is in Honduras right now. He took a lot of uh, medicine with him. All of it was confiscated by the government at the airport. Um, so, please pray for Dave. Pray for a, a miraculous restoration of this because he went down there to heal people. Uh, and so I think, well, let's just take a second and do that now. Can we, can we pray for our brother? Lord, thank you for this day. We're grateful that we can gather together, Lord, in a uh, climate-controlled room with a comfortable seat uh, and, and people who love us and no fear of uh, danger coming in the door. And um, we're mindful, God, that many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't enjoy that privilege. And so we recognize it as such. We thank you for it. We pray that you'd help us use it for your glory. Uh, but God, we want to lift up Dave today in Honduras as he uh, took a, a lot of medicine. It was donated. Um, and there are, are those in that society that would see um, their own want as being more important than people's need. Uh, and so we rebuke them in the name of Jesus. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that you would restore uh, this medicine or replace it. You are mighty. There's no limit on your power, Jesus. And we know that not only can you restore it, you can put even more of it uh, in Dave's hands uh, to give to those who, who desperately need it so that the gospel can be preached uh, to those people. And we just, we lift him up to you, Lord. We, we trust that you will do uh, what is right and that you will glorify your name through this experience. Jesus, we love you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Well, hey, open your Bibles to Acts chapter nine. That's where we're gonna begin today in this series. We're looking at how Jesus called himself the way. We talked about that last Sunday in Acts, or excuse me, uh, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus defined himself as the way. And then very on in the history of the church, we begin to see Christians describing themselves, followers of Jesus saying, we follow the way. They became known as followers of the way, or in our text today, those who belonged to the way. So we're going to talk about primitive Christianity for a few weeks. Here's the big idea this morning. Following the way of Jesus requires that you change. Following the way of Jesus requires that you change. And we're going to press into what that means today. Simply put, following whatever, you, you know, or, or rather, whatever your way was will have to go by the wayside when you begin to follow Jesus as the way. A change is both necessary and by God's grace generously provided. So let's look at when this happened for the Apostle Paul. Look with me at Acts chapter 9 starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul, that's Paul, same guy, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, if you've got a different translation or, or an older translation, it might say if he found any followers of the way, which is what the previous edition of the NIV had. I actually think the NIV improved on their translation here. It's a little closer to the original Greek text that underlies this. Those who belong to the way. That's how Christianity is defined. Those who belong to the way. Jesus' followers are those who belong to Jesus as the way. And notice the capitalization there, okay? Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. Now there are three changes that happen in Paul's life which transform him from an enemy of the way to really one of its greatest advocates. And if we're gonna follow in the way of Jesus, I think those same three changes have to apply to us. Before we talk about what they were though, I wanna make sure you really understand just how big of a shift that was for Paul. So let's talk about Paul's old nature. Let's talk about his old way of life for a little bit. Many of you are familiar with this story, all right? You know about Saul's conversion. You've maybe heard a sermon or two on this before if you've been in the church for very long. Here's what we forget. This is an interlude. What's the first verse in chapter nine? Or first word, rather. Meanwhile, right? If you've ever been to a play, like little kids, fourth grade, school play, right? The the kid comes out with a sign, meanwhile, or time passes, right? Like, Saul is, he's mentioned at the end of Acts 7, the beginning of Acts 8. That's where he's introduced as a persecutor of the church. We read this story here, and he disappears until chapter 13. This is an interlude. So why in the world would Luke break into his story? He's telling the story of the early church. He's talking about this. Why in the world would Luke stop his story to do this little interview, uh, interlude? rather? I'll tell you, the conversion of Paul gets more press in the book of Acts than any other event, including Pentecost. More time is spent describing this. More time is spent laying out Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion, than any other event. This is huge. And, Luke, and here's why Luke is going to take the time. It's why he's going to interrupt himself, and it's why he's going to continue to come back and, and tell this story multiple times in the book of Acts. Here's why. Because his point is that anybody, even somebody like Saul, can change by the power of Jesus Christ in his or her life. Anybody can become a follower of the way. He wants you to understand this. So, so who is this guy whose life is so changed, so transformed by this? The only thing we're told here is that he was someone who initiated persecution against these early followers of the way. They belonged to the way. Now that's significant. That phrase, those who belong to the way or followers of the way, is, is the first time that this appears in scripture, all right? Normally, followers of Jesus are called uh, brothers is very common, and that's not to exclude you ladies. It was a more comprehensive term just to describe the family of God, right? They're called brothers. They're called believers, those who have faith in Jesus. They're called disciples. And in the case of the 12, they're called apostles, right? Those, those are the most common terms in the, in, the, in the book of Acts for followers of Jesus. You see them all the time. Those words pop up constantly. You don't see followers of the way very often, We'll talk about it today. We'll look at a different passage from Hebrews next week. We'll come back to this followers of the way a couple more times in this series. But here's what I'm urging you to do. Don't count them. Weigh them. Don't count the references. Weigh them. 
They're huge. They're, they're majorly important here when we see these things. What this means is that the church was already beginning to have an identity that was distinct from its Jewish roots, which is where Saul is coming from. Right? The text tells us that he's breathing out murderous threats. If you were to translate that literally, you'd see that it says, and Saul breathed threats and murder. Whoa. This guy existed in an atmosphere of self-righteous hatred. That's what, was his, that's what he breathed. Sounds like America in the 21st century, right? Like, whoa. And so he asked for letters from the high priest, probably still Caiaphas, the same one who condemned Jesus to die, probably still him, right? To arrest any Christians that he finds in the worshiping in the Damascus synagogue. Now you need to remember, the church is still exclusively Jewish at this point. I mean, chapter 10 is Cornelius. That's where the gospel goes to the Gentiles. We're not there yet, right? Now this is significant because the Jewish communities outside Palestine really respected the authority of the high priest in Jerusalem, right? So they're in Damascus, which in Paul's day was Syria, a different province under the Roman Empire. It's a different country now, right? So in Paul's day, for the, the, the main synagogue in Damascus to get a letter from Caiaphas, likely Caiaphas, we don't know for sure, but probably him, in Jerusalem, it would have been a big deal. Like a letter with his signature on it and everything. And what that, they still respected the authority of the high priest, which means anyone who has a letter from the high priest carries his authority with him. They would have, they absolutely, the people of the synagogue in Damascus absolutely would have turned over to Paul any Christians that were worshiping with them. And if they would have had cell phones back then, I guarantee you that the synagogue leader would have taken this, this document that Paul had, this letter from Caiaphas and gone like, and taken a selfie with it. Because it was a big deal to have this. Paul never gets the chance. He's near Damascus when God breaks in. Falls to this bright light, falls to the ground. He hears his name twice. Saul, Saul. Now let's press into that a little bit here. It, it was common in antiquity for a person in a formal setting to be addressed by the repetition of their name. If this is formal language, this is a big deal. You're supposed to pay attention right? We have something similar in our culture. How many of you know exactly what it feels like when your mother calls you by your full legal name? This is not good news, is it? Generally, no, right? As a kid, Casey, Jonathan, Scott, oh my goodness, you know, what did I do? Oh no, or what did I not do? I should have done. In the text, his name is transliterated. So what transli translation is different than transliteration, Translation is when you take a Greek word and you find the right English word. Transliteration is when you take a, a Greek word and you just make it the English word. Here, his Hebrew name is transliterated into Greek. So, and because of what he says about his own story in Galatians, about being a Hebrew of Hebrews, I think what God is speaking to Paul in Hebrew here. He, Shaul, Shaul is translated Saul. So, and, and let me just maybe add this uh, here at this point. People talk about him changing his name. I don't know that he did. I, I think Saul's, it's, it's this idea of that he's a Roman citizen, so he has a tripartite name. Just like you have first, middle, and last, he would have also. So it's probably Shaul, Saul, Paulos, Paul, and then whatever his family name, last name was, we don't know for sure. Some scholars have said maybe Lysanias, we don't know uh, for sure. So and the point is, well, why did he change it? No, he just started going by his middle name, which was a Greek name, when he went into the Greek world. 
He, he, he begins, you know, remember Paul says, I become all things to all men so that all possible means I might win some. So as he moves into the Greek world, he begins to use his Greek name just because that's more familiar for people. It, it's less of a barrier to getting to know him, right? Building that relationship. And we'll see where that comes in in a little bit. But Jesus, I think, speaks to him here in his Hebrew name, Saul, Shaul, Shaul. Now he's a rabbi. He was trained by Gamaliel. So his ears are already tuned when he hears the repetition of his name. Who's he thinking of? He's thinking of Abraham. Abraham, Abraham. He's thinking of Moses at the burning bush. Moses, Moses. He's thinking of little boy Samuel in the tabernacle. Samuel, Samuel. That repetition of the name, but he's a rabbi. He's got his attention. And he knows his rabbinical training has trained him to understand this is the voice of the Lord. He knows it's God's voice. He understands who it is. And so then when he says, why do you persecute me? Saul is like, wait, what? Because he knows God is speaking to him. He thinks he's doing what he's doing on behalf of God. And all of a sudden, God is saying, you're persecuting me. And it's just like, it, it fries his circuits. And he, so his question is the same thing you would ask. Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, let me just get devotional on you for, for a second real quick. We'll come back to Paul in a bit. But let me just get devotional on you. I want you to understand this. Saul's dragging these people off, putting them in a prison, probably having them executed for, for blasphemy. That would have been the charge, blasphemy. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. He, he puts it on himself. You need to understand this. When you are persecuted for the sake of the gospel, if people, if people treat you bad because you're a jerk, fine, you deserve it. But when you suffer for your faith, you need to take encouragement that Jesus is there with you. He's participating in that with you. We sang about it earlier, right? You're with me in the fire. It's a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. You're there in the water, right? When the Israelites are going through the Red Sea. In these moments of trial, in these moments of testing, Jesus is with you. He is physically and personally present in your life if you're his follower. This is powerful stuff. And, we, and, and so Paul is like, he's just blown away. And then the, the story kind of shifts away, doesn't it? We leave Paul in Damascus. He's blind. He's confused. He's fasting and praying. You're going to have some opportunities to fast and pray. Next Monday night is the final meeting of, for the Prayer Fast Global Network Conference that's coming up. Discipleship.org, Renew.org. That's next Monday night. Information in your bulletin about that. And then on May 7th, uh, we're going to have an, another night of prayer and discernment for our Chapel Rock Community Development Corporation I want to encourage you to be, uh, be thinking about that and put those things on your calendar. Paul's, he, he, we leave him there fasting and praying. And, and through that process, Jesus is transforming him. He's using Paul's blindness to show him how blind he'd really been. The philosopher Plato said, conversion is not implanting eyes for they exist already, but giving them direction which they have not. So how does Jesus convert or transform Saul called Paul from a persecutor of the way to one of its greatest advocates? I think there are three changes that happen in Saul's life that are mirrored in our own, all right? So you look for them as we read the rest of the, this, uh, this text. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. Now, by the way, this is a different Ananias than the Ananias of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. Totally different guy, okay? Okay. Um, 
because for a couple reasons, it's just a different guy, but also that the other one's dead by that point. Okay, so different dude. How many of you know more than one person named John? Right, okay, it's a more common name back then, so different guy. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here. No ambiguity there, right? He's, we're going to make real sure who we're talking about here. Has sent me to you so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Note, pay real close attention to the language here. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Implied answer to both questions, yes. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Paul's transformation from a persecutor of the way to a follower of the way required three changes. And I think that that's mirrored in our own life. If you want to follow Jesus as the way, there are three changes that you need to have. Here's the first one. You need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. You need to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. The first thing Saul did to begin his journey as a follower of the way was to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. Now, as far as we know, Ananias was just a normal guy. He's called a disciple. That's like the normal common term for a follower of Jesus in the New Testament. It just means someone who's engaged in learning. It's the most common designation in the New Testament for Christians. God commands Ananias to go to Saul and lay hands on him and heal him. And the language that's used here is reminiscent of the language in the Old Testament when God calls the prophets on their mission. And I want you to notice, both of them had visions that this would happen. Saul had a vision that Ananias would come. Ananias had a vision that he had to go to Saul. And there's this really interesting thing that happens in ancient documents, right? In ancient literature, the idea of twin visions is, is really, really rare, but they do occur. And what's interesting 
is that it was universally recognized in ancient literature when you have twin visions that match, that is God at work. Luke's audience would have known that. So this idea, when he talks about these, these two matching visions that just interlock, Luke's audience would have said, oh, wow, this really is God. God is really at work in this situation here. So Ananias had this divine appointment with Saul, but just like we would, <laughs> he objected, like, because he's a normal person. I was talking about this with my boys. I said, we were talking about, I don't know how we got off on this. I said, guys, how do you know that this is not a fairy tale? And I kind of got a blank stare, which is what I expected. And I said, because the good guys, they tell them about the time that the good guys mess up. If this was a fairy tale, the good guys wouldn't ever mess up. They would always do the right thing. This is not a made-up story. So here, I mean, think about all the times that Peter, right, knew Jesus, says to him, no, Lord, <laughs> right? Ananias here, he's like, uh, hang on a minute, right? You say, well, why would, he, why would he delay? Okay, let's put this in a modern context for you. Let's say Jesus appears to you in a vision and says, I want you to take your own money and buy a plane ticket to North Korea and go share the gospel with Kim Jong-un. Uh, you sure about that, Lord? Uh, like, I mean, I, okay, I think I'd need to ask for some ID at that point. Like, is this really God or is this just the hot dog I had late last night? Like, what, um, what is this? But this, Ananias goes, and it's, the whole point is to impress on you the change that's happening in Saul's life. God says that Saul was going to be his chosen instrument. Now, that's a really interesting phrase because one of those words is very, very special, and one of those words is very, very ordinary. The word chosen is very special, right? That's, that's the word for divine election. That's the word in, Reve in, in Romans 11, right? That God has chosen the people of Israel. It's a big deal. This, is, this matters. But the word instrument is the normal word, like a generic word, like we would say the word tool. Like it's like a hammer or a screwdriver or whatever. It's just let me get my tools. It's very, very plain. So I want you to see what God is doing here. He's taking this very, very special word, a lot of theological freight. This is loaded. And he's taking a very, very ordinary word, this plain thing, and he's putting them together and saying, I have picked this guy to be the guy who gets the job done. And what was the beginning of all that? Saul calls Jesus Lord. He acknowledged the lordship of Jesus in his life. Ananias goes to meet him and, and he's expecting this terror and he said, instead he meets a humbled, blinded man who needs to hear about the love of Jesus. He calls him brother. This blows my mind. This is before, like, Saul hadn't been baptized yet. Like, brother, I come to you in the name of Jesus, no confusion about who we're talking about, and I am here to heal you and see that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happened? Scale, something like scale fell from his eyes and he was baptized. What's the implication? Being filled with the Holy Spirit and baptism go together. Otherwise, Saul fa or Ananias failed in half his mission. Some folks have, I think, wrongly tried to separate those two. And there are times God is sovereign, he can do what he wants, and we're going to look at one of those passages in a couple weeks where those, those two things don't necessarily happen together. But generally speaking, the norm is they belong together. Otherwise, Ananias blew it. He didn't accomplish what God said to do. At least in the story of the Apostle Paul, right, those things go together. When you acknowledge the lordship of Jesus, 
you're baptized, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. All those things belong together in space and time. And I'm here to tell you that if you're going to tell me that you follow Jesus, but you don't want to be baptized, I'm not going to apologize when I doubt whether or not you actually are calling Jesus Lord. He said, do it. He did it. It's in the Great Commission. What's the hang up? You call Jesus Lord, it's going to change your life. See, that's the next part of this. Because following in the way of Jesus, after you've acknowledged him as Lord, you have to let him change you. The way of Jesus requires transformation. And the second change that happens here is that you've got to let Jesus transform you. The text tells us that Saul spent several days with the other followers of the way, the disciples. And my assumption is that during this time, Paul, Saul is coming, and I'm just going to use them interchangeably. Uh, He's coming to some rapid conclusions about who Jesus is through this time, right? He, he studied under the leading rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. He, Paul is probably one of the most intelligent human beings who's ever walked the face of the earth. He was at least trilingual, probably pentalingual, fluent in Greek, Hebrew, very likely Latin, also possibly Syriac, Aramaic, and, and maybe some other stuff. Like, just absolutely brilliant. He had the Greek philosophers memorized and could quote them at will in a sermon, impromptu sermon in, in, in Athens. Like, incredible mental powers, right? So he knows the Old Testament. And as he's doing this, now having acknowledged the lordship of Jesus, he's going, oh my goodness, there's this. And he's thinking of like, there's Psalm, you know, um, 22, and there's Isaiah 53, and he's just, all this stuff is coming in his mind, and he's just, boom, he's making these connections. Days into his new Christian life, he's preaching. Like, whoa. It's, it's an incredible thing that God did. He is letting Jesus transform him. He didn't waste any time in jumping into action. Now, here's something I love about that Mandalorian show. When they say this is the way, They're talking about the way that they live, the things that they do. And what that means is to be a follower of the way means to be biased toward action, biased toward obedience. To be a follower of the way means that you have a bias toward action, you have a bias toward obedience. That's what it means to follow Jesus, right? This idea that I'm going to follow in his way and therefore I'm going to change the way. I'm going to let him change me. I'm going to live the way he lives. And the people who hear Saul preach, I mean, the text says they're baffled, not because he wasn't clear, but because they're just, the way he used to be and the way he is now are very different. He, he had been changed by Jesus. The text says he grew more and more powerful. He's rapidly growing in his commitment to the Lord, his understanding of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. He says he was proving to them that that he had done these things. And and Luke moves pretty quickly here. The many days, for many days in verse 23, probably about three years according to Galatians 1. Right? During that time, Paul is in the desert. I think he's spending a lot of time alone with Jesus, just being instructed by the Lord in his resurrected state, you know? And and he's, he's listening to that. And it says that he's proving to the Jews who live in Damascus, probably 10 to 15,000 at the time, that Jesus is the Messiah. So by the time he gets back to Damascus here, you know, after this time, the Jews have realized this guy is a powder keg. We got to get rid of him. 
And so Saul was letting Jesus take everything he was, all his native abilities, right? All those hard-won skills, all the things he had studied, and focus them on proclaiming the gospel. And when you choose to walk in the way, Jesus will do the same for you. He'll take every ability you have. He'll take everything you've ever studied. He'll take every experience you've ever been through, and he will leverage it for the sake of the gospel. You're like, everything? Yes, everything. Like, well, but I've done some stuff that I'm not proud of. I know. He knows. Me too. Here's the thing. D- did Jesus want you to compromise on your sexuality? No. But he can use it to tell a story about purity. Did Jesus want you to cheat in your business? No. But he can use it to tell a story about integrity as you let him change you. Did Jesus want you to treat somebody different because they don't look or smell or speak or vote like you? No, but he can use it to tell a pretty compelling story about God's love. When you let him change you, that story changes. Followers of the way, let Jesus change them. There's one more change we have to make to follow the way. We have to share the experience. We have to share the experience. The best thing that ever happened to Saul, apart from Jesus, was Barnabas. Right? Look at verse 26. Saul wanted to join the apostles, or the, the, the disciples rather, they're afraid. I mean, wouldn't you be? I would be. Totally. Yeah, I mean, with apologies to Dr. Seuss, I wouldn't touch that guy with a 39 and a half foot pole. Like, you stay over there, man. And, and their fear was warranted. I mean, this guy had been the primary persecutor of Christians. The Jewish leaders were like, ah, it's a fad. And Paul is the one who, he sees this. He goes, no, 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 this is something different. We got to go after this. This is not, it's not like some of these other things that have come along. This is different. You know, he wants to join them and they're like, that's bait. That is bait. They are expecting a trap. They're like, he's, he's pretending, he's faking, he's lying. That's bait. <laughs> and it's understandable, but it's not an excuse. I'm incredibly grateful for Barnabas because I'm a Gentile and my people were worshiping trees and rocks and deer and stuff before the gospel got to Northern Europe. I, I told you before, I think probably other than the name of Jesus, one of my favorite words in the Bible is the word but. You see that in verse 27? But. I love that word. I've got a whole sermon series idea, but... Um, <laughs> Debbie said, I can't do my sermon series called The Biggest Butts of the Bible. She says, you can't, you can't say that. Okay, honey, I, 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 will, I will live with that. Uh, I love you. Um, but, the text says, Barnabas took him. In the book of Acts, Saul, also called Paul, is the main human character, right? And he's very often painted as the hero of the story. I personally think Barnabas deserves an award or something, like, you know, best supporting disciple. I don't like, um, he just, he's so incredible. It's Barnabas that takes Saul to the apostles. It's Barnabas that convinces them of the truth of Saul's conversion. It's Barnabas that tells them how fearlessly Saul has preached the gospel of Jesus. It's Barnabas that probably introduced him to the mother church in Jerusalem. And it's probably Barnabas who scheduled speaking engagements for him and saved his life more than once. I say all that to say this, if you're going to follow in the way of Jesus, you have to share the experience with others. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. I mean, even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. 
It doesn't, it doesn't work. Even if, if, here's the thing. Jesus called 12 men to share his life with him. Saul called Barnabas, and when they had a philosophical disagreement about how to do their ministry, they split, and Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul called Silas, and he called Timothy, and he began to make more disciples. The the point here is this. If you're going to say, I'm following in the way, you have to share that experience. Again, it's borne out in the show, The Mandalorian. You see this, where like at the beginning of the show, he's a loner. He's alone. Nobody's there to help him. Even the other Mandalorians on the planet don't seem to like the guy. By the third season, he's kind of developed this little team (laughs) that are helping him accomplish his mission. Listen, when you are following on the way, you gotta understand you are not alone. You cannot do this thing called following Jesus by yourself. This whole me and Jesus garbage has gotta go because it's all of us together as a body following Christ, helping each other. I mean, not even the apostle Paul could do it by himself. What makes you think you're better than that? Did you hear me today? Following the way of Jesus requires that you change. Listen, if, if, if at some point in your journey, somebody told you that you could follow Jesus without changing anything from your old way of life, I make no apologies for this. They lied to you. If somebody told you that all you needed to do to walk in the way was just kind of spritz Jesus across your life and post a Bible verse on Facebook every now and then, you bought into a big old fat load of hooey. Following in the way requires that you change. And when you do, Like the Apostle Paul, God might use your life to turn the world upside down. When you acknowledge Jesus as Lord and you let him change you and you begin to share that with others. And some of you, if you've been around Chapel Rock for a few years, are like, hey, what you just said, that sounds kind of familiar. Good. Good. Because that's what we mean. When we say you bring your brokenness to Jesus, you let him change you, and then you go share that with somebody else. Where do you think we got that language? It's Paul's story, and maybe, maybe today it can be your story. If you're here today and you've never acknowledged Jesus as Savior and Lord in just a second, you're going to have an opportunity to do that. We're going to stand and sing a song together, and I'm going to invite you to come forward. Name him as Savior and Lord. Reject your old way of life and and repent of your sin and follow him in, in confession of him as Savior and Lord to be baptized, to receive God's spirit inside you, to empower you to live this changed life like Jesus wants. And if you have made that decision, you have an obligation to share that with somebody. You got the best news in the history of the universe ever. Tell somebody. Invite them into your life with you. Maybe you need prayer. We'd love to pray with you. The next step room is going to be open. If you want to have a conversation with someone or have some questions, we'd love to entertain those. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together, and you respond as God leads you today.